0: That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Haledi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from one mile away. So I know what happens when the so-called experts get it wrong. Two weeks ago, a lightning strike took out both nuclear power reactors at the LaSalle, Illinois, Energy Facility, and unfiltered steam, meaning radioactive steam, was released into the atmosphere about 125 miles from Chicago. Did we almost lose the Windy City? Let's find out. Today's interview will feature Gail Snyder of the Midwest's Nuclear Energy Information Service and Andrew Kishner, who writes on nuclearcrimes.org. That highly informative interview on the problems at LaSalle will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, April 30th, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. We'll start out in Japan this week where the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant is faced with a new crisis, a flood of highly radioactive wastewater that workers are struggling to contain. Groundwater is pouring into the plant's ravaged reactor buildings at a rate of almost 75 gallons a minute. It becomes highly contaminated there before being pumped out to keep from swamping a critical cooling system. That quandary, along with an embarrassing string of mishaps, including a 29-hour power failure affecting another less vital cooling system, have underscored an alarming reality. Two years after the meltdowns, the plant remains vulnerable to the same sort of large earthquake and tsunami that set the original calamity in motion. According to Tadashi Inoue, an expert in the nuclear power industry who served on a committee that drew up the roadmap for cleaning up the facility, TEPCO is clearly just hanging on day by day, with no time to think about tomorrow, much less next year. The underground storage facilities, all seven of the pools, have been leaking, and now waste is being stored in drums, pots, pans, anything they can possibly hold it in. Many experts warn that safety systems and fixes at the plant remain makeshift and prone to accidents, to say nothing of rat infestations. Yet even news that bad does not stop the Japanese government, where it has been announced by Japan's major supplier of nuclear power generating equipment, France's Arriva Group, that Tokyo plans to restart six reactors by the end of 2013. The other reactors, according to Arriva, will be started later, except the Fukushima type made in the United States. Isn't it interesting that a French company is announcing Japanese national policy while dissing the U.S. manufacturer? Man, that's got to be the nuclear equivalent of a grand slam homer. The chief executive officer of the French state-owned nuclear group further said at the press conference, In addition to two reactors already put back into operation in Japan, there could be half a dozen reactors that will restart by the end of the year. But Japanese Kyoto Press Agency believes the country's nuclear power generation facilities will remain frozen through the end of 2013. Here's hoping that it will continue long beyond. Always empathetic to the needs of their people, in Japan, a court has rejected a demand that... Koriyama, a city near the Fukushima nuclear disaster, evacuate its children. The Sendai High Court handed down its ruling on Wednesday, April twenty-fourth. The lawsuit argued the city of Koriyama had legal responsibility to evacuate children at elementary schools and junior high schools, which are part of compulsory education under Japanese law. The court acknowledged radiation in the city exceeded levels deemed safe prior to the disaster. But it said the government shoulders no responsibility for evacuating the schools as demanded, in effect, telling people to leave on their own if they were worried. The sad part of this is that the case was filed in June of 2011, and here it is almost two years later, and no satisfaction for the kids or their parents or anyone else in the country, unless they're pro-nuke. A video surfaced this week by Kieko Ichikawa, who is the author of A Letter from Fukushima, in which she speaks about what is believed to be happening to deformed babies who are born in Japan. This is a very upsetting video. It is short, and it will be linked to on the website, nuclearhotseatcom forward slash blog. Little snapshots from Japan. As of the 27th of April... Fallout levels in Tokyo keep increasing and are at the highest level since last April. The reason has not been verified. One might suppose by extrapolation that it has something to do with the additional and ever increasing leaking radioactive water at the Fukushima Daiichi site. Hey, vegetables from Tamura, which is inside the Fukushima no go zone, are now okay to ship to stores. Woohoo! The ban on vegetable shipments from tomorrow was lifted last month, making it the first in the no-go zone to receive the green light for sales. Mm -mm -mm. At least two farms are preparing to plant rice and to grow feed grain. The only farmer left in the town of Fukushima ships broccoli and lettuce to supermarkets, and consumers report his vegetables are tasty and have a rich flavor. Add a little soy sauce, a little ginger, a sprinkling of radionuclides... And not only will you have a delicious meal, but even if the light goes out in your refrigerator, you'll know it's there because it will be glowing in the dark. On April twenty-fourth, Ziji, a news agency in Japan, reported that possible radioactive traces from a North Korean nuclear test in February have been detected for the first time in Japan. The Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization, CTBTO, said... This coincides very well with North Korea's announced nuclear test on February 12. It is also possible that the radionuclides were from a nuclear reactor or other atomic activity. In India, protesters against the Kudankulam nuclear power plant have been arrested. Police on Saturday, April 27, arrested as many as 146 activists, including 36 women and 5 children. These people were from the Anti-Kudankulam Nuclear Power Project People's Federation. Their crime? They tried to make a peaceful procession, a march, from Kanyakumari to Kudankulam. The activists urged the government to take immediate steps to close the Kalpakam Atomic Power Project, as well as the Kudankulam Nuclear Power Project, saying that they would adversely affect the livelihood of local residents, including fishermen, farmers, and other people. They demanded the government withdraw various cases foisted on the anti-Kudankulam protesters, who are only engaged in organizing nonviolent agitations. This is part of an ongoing protest that has been happening for years now in India against Kudankulam and now is spreading to other nuclear power plants in that country. Hearing for the first time from some friends in Australia that the Anti-Nuclear Alliance of Western Australia, or ANAWA, is beginning a protest walk that they're calling the Wakatjura Walkabout from the 4th to the 28th of May. This is in protest of the first proposed nuclear mine in Western Australia. The group is expecting close to 100 people, along with the media, senators, and a large international contingency made up of people from France, Japan, Finland, South Africa, and New Zealand. The French organization Sortie du Nucléaire pardon me if that pronunciation was wrong has invited participants of the Wakajura walkabout to come to France in July to walk and spread the message of the devastation caused by uranium mining in Australia. This is the beginning of an international campaign to keep Western Australia nuclear-free. Nuclear Hot Seat wishes you well. Please keep us posted. Here in the U.S., when it comes to nuclear, everything old is new again, because, yes, Virginia, there was a plume from Fukushima that hit our shores after the accident happened. This, according to an audio file from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, dated March 17, 2011, meaning just six days after the accident happened. The NRC knew and withheld the information. Among the people speaking on this transcript this is all inside NRC, one of the participants said NARAC, the National Atmospheric Release Advisory Center, did do their evaluation of, using our source term, they were calculating doses, particularly for children. Later on, someone else says, NARAC dose estimate that was done for California that we obtained as part of the DOE, Department of Energy, briefing package, and those were estimating what we believe to be very high doses to children. One person asked, is this information being considered for releasing publicly, like we do with the press release? I'm talking about these projected dose models. And a Mr. Dan Dorman said, no, no, we're not planning any press releases with this information. In other words, the NRC knew They stopped the information from coming out, and for people who were unaware of what was happening, which was most of the people in the United States and elsewhere, we didn't have the chance to take protective measures. I wonder how many cases of thyroid cancer are going to result because of this choice by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. At San Onofre in Southern California a source from inside the nuclear power plant has come forward to warn that restarting it is too dangerous. There was a report on Channel 10 News in San Diego that showed the man, a safety engineer who has worked in the nuclear field for 25 years and currently works inside San Onofre, said the tubes were hitting each other. That's dangerous. When they made these changes, meaning to the steam generators that have been proven so faulty, they did not look at the academic research, nor use critical questions and an investigative attitude. The NRC is expected to make a decision about the possible restart of San Onofre within the coming weeks. Current bets here at Nuclear Hot Seat had the announcement set for late afternoon on Friday, May 24, which is right before the three-day Memorial Day weekend. Great way to bury that story so maybe people won't notice, you think? I love the activism that is coming out of New England. Leave it to all those Yankees to know how to stick it to Vermont Yankee. On Saturday, April 27, the town of Leverett, Massachusetts, voted in their annual Springtown meeting to abolish the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Would that it were that easy. They also voted to demand that Energy expand the emergency evacuation zone around the troubled Vermont Yankee nuclear plant from 10 to 50 miles. The resolution said in part, Given the past callous disregard for public safety, we hereby express our lack of faith in the existing Nuclear Regulatory Commission to protect us from nuclear accident." Given our immediate proximity to Vermont Yankee, a facsimile reactor to Fukushima, whose radiation plumes spread much more than 50 miles to Tokyo in the wake of Fukushima, we require for our citizen and school safety a more effective plan. Therefore, we demand that the Energy Corporation expand from 10 to 50 miles the minimum radiation hazard zone. Leverett, Massachusetts, is within 30 miles of Vermont Yankee. At the same time, The Vermont Senate Government Operations Committee, on Wednesday, April 24, voted to recommend Entergy be required to pay more than $770,000 to fund an updated evacuation plan, as presented by the Red Cross. After spending more than six months reviewing the Red Cross proposal, a Division of Emergency Management and Homeland Security not only approved the request, but increased it by nearly $50,000. Appropriations committee members recommended that the entire amount be set aside and allocated over 4 years whether or not the plant continues to operate. Red Cross representative Larry Christ said that more than 727,000 was needed to fund the Red Cross's role in the plan, which includes finding shelter for up to 6,000 people who live in the emergency preparedness zone around the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant. Michael McKenney Vermont Yankees' emergency planning manager, was shocked, I tell you, shocked, as he wrote to object to the Red Cross proposal on behalf of Entergy. All the blah, blah, blahs that he possibly could. Look, to use the language currently out there regarding nuclear matters, oh, Entergy people, pull up your big boy panties and suck it up. Love this report out of King 5 News, which is in Washington State. The reporter said, and this is about the Hanford nuclear site, This tank is holding waste that is so toxic that if it were to eat through its outer shell and reach the nearby Columbia River, it would contaminate irrigation water, crops, salmon, our food chain, not for months, but for hundreds of years to come. No, darling, not hundreds of years. Tens of thousands of years, and still nothing is being done to clean up Hanford. And in yet another brilliant example of nuclear mismanagement, attorneys for Kansas City Power & Light and Westar Energy claim in a $25 million lawsuit filed on April 12th that ABB Incorporated in North Carolina did lousy repair work on a transformer at the nuclear reactor in Burlington, Kansas, about 80 miles from Kansas City. Wolf Creek's owners charged that the vendor's slapdash labor led to a January 13, 2012 shutdown of the nuclear plant, which lasted 73 days. Look, guys, it's really a poor workman who blames his tools. These guys were working for you. You didn't check. You didn't supervise. The buck stops with you. The facility was under increased scrutiny by regulators in 2011 after it experienced too many unplanned shutdowns. And still the idiots couldn't supervise the work to make sure it was done right. Lowest bidder, indeed. Nuclear numbnuts, nuclear numbnuts, nuclear numbnuts, got to get that recorded. Okay, we've got three nominees for Num Nuts of the Week this week. Number three is from Fox News, a broadcast report on what is killing sea lion pups. They wanted to find out whether whatever is killing the sea lions could affect humans. The expert interviewed said, we eat a lot of the same fish species, we are using the ocean in similar ways, so what we learn from them, meaning the sea lions, definitely does play into our health. The reporter asked, Could it be radiation from Japan's Fukushima nuclear plant that had a meltdown back in 2011? To which the anchor replied, Wow, that would be astounding. And sad, certainly. Sad? Sad? That's the best word you can come up with for a triple meltdown that is in the process of killing all marine mammals and is coming after us next? Fox. Number two on Numbnuts of the Week. This is runner-up. A truck carrying drill cuttings from a hydraulic fracturing pad, a fracking pad, in Marcellus Shale, was rejected by a Pennsylvania landfill Friday, April 26th after it set off a radiation alarm. This according to published reports. The truck was emitting gamma radiation from radium-226 at almost ten times the level permitted at the landfill. The Max Environmental Technologies truck was first quarantined at the landfill, which is also operated by Max, so they rejected their own truck. Then it was sent back to the fracking pad to be redirected to a site that can accept higher levels of radiation. Oh yeah, that really handles it, guys. That takes care of the problem. Just so you know. Radium-226 emits alpha and gamma radiation and tends to accumulate in bone if inhaled or ingested, this according to the EPA. It has been linked to lymphoma, bone cancer, and diseases that affect the formation of blood, such as leukemia and aplastic anemia. Just sweep it under a different rug, guys. Who's going to know the difference? But really, truly, the ultimate numbnuts of this week belongs yet again to San Onofre. Why, you may ask? That's because a picture snapped inside SANO shows plastic bags, masking tape, and a broomstick used to stem a massive leaky pipe. Oh, my God, technology in action. The picture was taken inside Unit 3 which is shut down and is not expected to ever come back online again. Still, it's a leak at a nuclear reactor that was shut down because it was leaking. According to a statement released by Southern California Edison spokesmodel Maureen Brown, the plastic is in place to direct the water from the small leak to a drain. That makes me feel so much better. The inside source said, if that's nuclear technology at work and that's how we're going to control leaks, I think the public should know. Sources also point to what appears to be corrosion on the pipes as a sign of the power plant's age. They claim rust is rampant throughout San Onofre, including what sources call a fire suppression pipe, which protects both units. At least it would if it wasn't rusty. Staff sent a letter to management saying that San Onofre clearly has a serious corrosion problem in pipes throughout the plant. One source said, this is nuclear. This should be tip-top. Everything in that plant should be tip-top, not bottom of the barrel. We will have a link to that picture up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Today's interview focuses on the Midwest with the question, did we almost lose Chicago to a nuclear event? Our two guests today will elaborate on the recent series of accidents at Entergy's LaSalle Nuclear Power Plant in Illinois. Gail Snyder is with the Nuclear Energy Information Service, and Andrew Kishner researches technical issues and writes about them on his website, nuclearcrimes.org. Together, they filled in many of the blanks about the ongoing, some might say cascading, problems faced by the nuclear facility in the past two weeks.
1: Let's start out with just what happened there. On April 17th, in the middle of a thunderstorm, and let's take it sequentially from there. Andrew, would you get us started?
2: On April 17th, uh, the plant was hit by lightning uh, during a thunderstorm, and the the NRC was told by the operator that they think that that was what caused a loss of, loss of off-site power. And that loss of off-site power resulted in what ordinarily these reactors are supposed to do, The diesel generators come on and they restore cooling. Um, Unfortunately, uh, not everything worked according to plan. Uh, There were two emergency cooling functions that at LaSalle Unit 2, as you said, Levy, there are two reactors at LaSalle. At Unit 2, the two cooling functions failed. One was a a high-pressure core spray system and another was a residual heat removal system. And these weren't um, complete failures of these two systems, but I think these partial failures of both um, made it such that the operators at LaSalle Unit 2 saw a problem that I don't think is really usual at these reactors, is that the pressure was building in the reactor core at a level that they felt they needed to release that pressure.
1: Now, have the reactors gone into scram shutdown yet?
2: Yes. It, it was a, a scram, meaning there was an automatic uh, insertion of control rods to stop the fission reaction. Mm-hmm. So this was, this was uh, taking it from 100% power down to zero, you know, as much of a scram as you can get.
1: Screeching on the brakes and hoping that your engine can uh, survive such a, such a drastic drop.
2: Right, yeah. These, these scrams, they're not great on these, these old reactors, which is a whole other issue. But, but at LaSalle, at Unit 2, right after that lightning strike, right after that scram, uh, what the reactor operator saw was that the cooling wasn't working as well as they thought it was with the diesel generators supplying emergency cooling function. And they saw the pressure rising in the reactor pressure vessel, where the core is, where the fuel rods are, and they felt the need to bleed that out into the next containment, which is called the primary containment, and that was even increasing in pressure, and and that pressure, it comprises of water and, and gases and you know, steam mostly. And that pressure they felt was too much, even for you know they, maybe they didn't know, you know what would happen if the pressure kept building. Uh, I'm not sure because this, this is still under investigation by the NRC. But this right, is, this
1: is an uh, this is a moving target we're dealing with right now. <laughs>
2: Right. All all we know is that, and this is actually the most important aspect uh, in my mind, considering that everything was safe after that. There was no accident. The most important thing about what had happened on the 17th is that Unit Two, that pressure was building in the primary containment, and the operators vented that steam up into the atmosphere through a vent that had no filters, and through a vent that, even more importantly had a monitor in there that was supposed to measure the gases, meaning the radiation level of the gases. In that vent, which had no filter, if there was radiation in those gases, there would be. A, there's, there's a monitor there that should have been measuring the radiation in those gases. That monitor was off. The reason why it was off is because for some reason that monitor was not hooked up to backup power. <laughs> How competent of them. A similar thing happened to Unit 2 uh, pretty pretty much simultaneously. Uh, same situation, pressure building. They had to vent, but that went through a system of filters.
3: But, but that was yeah, Unit
2: 1. But that was, was, was Unit one, 1, and there was also no monitoring.
1: Now, Gail, what's your take on what happened and how the situation is proceeding?
3: Well, one thing is that this event... <laughs> is raising, and all the event reports that have been uh, coming up on the NRC's event website have really raised more questions than we have answers to right now. One of the event reports says that the event was a condition that could have prevented the fulfillment of the safety function to systems needed to mitigate the consequences of an accident. Could you translate that, please? What they're saying there is that this was one of the safety systems in place, to prevent an accident and they were having a problem with it. And, and, you know, so the problem is that power is needed to keep the reactor supplied with water so that the fuel doesn't overheat and melt down. The two reactors went into the emergency shutdown and the backup generators were started to supply the power um, to keep the fuel cool. And while the event report states that the systems have all responded as expected, at some time between the loss of power and the start of the backup generators, the pressure built up, as Andrew said, and um, they had to vent steam. So, you know, one of the qu- first questions we have is, with the backup generators operating, why was there such a buildup of steam and pressure to cause the operator to vent the steam? Shouldn't the generators start up quickly enough so that the amount of time between the loss of the power that the nuclear reactor usually runs under and then their loss of power and then the startup of the backup generators, shouldn't that time frame be be very short so that this doesn't happen?
1: Do we know um, how the, long it they, was?
3: I don't know how long it was. It doesn't say that in any of the reports, and uh, you know, we're hoping that this, um, as Andrew said, the report that the NRC is doing this special investigation will answer a lot of the questions that we have because it really has implications into um, all the other reactors around the country. And is this, if this is how a plant system is supposed to respond, is this what we're supposed to expect? It's really not acceptable. And you know, when you have a when you have a generator hooked up to, say, for instance, a house and it's hooked up to a natural gas line. When your power goes down, the generator starts up within about five minutes. It's mainlined right into your electrical box. So, you know, my question is, where, what was this lapse there and this, and this pressure buildup as a result?
1: So, wait, 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 let me see where I'm going next. Gail, you said going to going me in the, the pre-interview that this series of events raises more questions than you have answers to. What are those questions? What do you mean by that?
3: One of the things that everyone is concerned about is how much radiation was in the steam that was released into the air. And even though the event report says that, you know, one of the steam releases was filtered and the other one wasn't, one of the things that we know is that there is a valve within where the vent is steamed, and that is supposed to trip when the radiation goes beyond the federal limit and that didn't trip, so the idea would be that, you know, hopefully the radiation was um, below that level, but we really don't know for sure. So at the times that these reactors are most likely to vent steam due to a power loss, the radiation vent stack monitoring equipment wasn't working, which is another monitor from what I understand. There's two. There's the vent monitor that will shut the vent when the radiation gets too high. And then there's this other monitor that we're talking about where, you know, it had no power when the power went out. And so our our next question is really with the availability of backup emergency generators, batteries, natural gas, solar panels, and all these other ways to support this radiation monitoring equipment, why was it okay to vent the steam without monitoring? Why did they have the system set up this way? Um this was, you know, part of the original design apparently Why hasn't
1: anyone, why hasn't the NRC or anyone else caught this and figured out a way to fix it? You know, they have so many blind spots. I was at Three Mile Island, and they said from the start that nobody knew how much radiation had been released. Now, my assumption was always that because things are supplied on government bids or in bids like this by the lowest possible bidder, that it was some substandard piece of equipment that just didn't work. It was like a thermostat on the wall, and it it just didn't work when the time came. It was only after Fukushima when, in my research into all things nuclear, I came across a seminar that Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds put together on Three Mile Island where he said that the level of radiation released was so high that the equipment fried. So the fact that they have not bothered to think this through, maybe they would prefer to not have any readings going out for fear of panicking people with the truth of what happened.
2: It's bad press for the nuclear industry, considering they just waged a battle and actually won last month to not put filters, vent, filters on these vents. And here we, because in part one of their arguments was that they never gonna, they never used these vents really. And even in Fukushima, these vents they was attempted to be used, but they didn't even work. Well, here we have a situation where these vents were used, radiation we believe was released, and these filters, which would have captured 99.9% of the radiation, weren't there. story
3: having not been covered by the media. The
2: There's energy.
1: still no coverage on it in the Chicago area?
3: No. You know, ultimately, why radiation is allowed to be released from any nuclear reactor in the country comes back to the decisions made by the Nuclear Regul- Regulatory Commission and the influence the nuclear industry has upon the NRC and the U.S. Congress. Recently, uh, the NRC had the opportunity to require those filters, as Andrew mentioned, Um, but the nuclear industry lobbied Congress and the NRC not to install the filters.
1: What was your reason for saying,
3: eh, we don't need those filters? Number one, which they're not really emphasizing, is that it's really expensive, and they don't want to spend the money on it.
1: Yet they Um, make profits of of a million dollars a day per reactor, what they couldn't, like, you know, take some of that money and – plan for the worst while hoping for the best instead of just hoping for the best and leaving us to figure out something if the worst happens?
3: If you're just in business to make money, um, you could understand the thinking, but the, the flip side of that is that our congressmen are supposed to ultimately be the watchdog's over the NRC, and um, a number of them, including uh, one from Illinois, Adam Representative Adam Kinzinger, who represents the district that includes the LaSalle Nuclear Facility, signed a letter to the NRC asking them not to require the installation of these kinds of filters. And so the NRC voted four to one not to have the industry install the filters. And you know, why not? Why couldn't they have uh, done this to prevent the release of this kind of thing? Now um, now we don't even know how much radiation we might have been exposed to, and if the filters were on there, we wouldn't really necessarily be asking this question because it would have, hopefully, the majority of it would have been filtered out.
1: You know, there's a, there is a monitoring group around San Onofre here in Southern California. A lot of people have got their own Geiger counters, and check with each other and post the radiation level. So they're always monitoring it. Is there anything like that in place around LaSalle, a citizen monitoring network?
3: Not really. Um, There's a few people uh, here and there, and certainly since Fukushima, who monitor radiation. um, I've gone out. I do have a Geiger counter, and I've gone out and measured radiation. Recently there was an interesting situation back, I believe, in January, where snow was being produced from uh, the cooling towers, and in, in the case of LaSalle, the cooling pond, creating a lake effect snow almost, if you will, in these bands that you could see on, on satellite radar, and people were kind of curious as to what that meant and what the radiation levels would be. Now, the, there shouldn't be radiation levels in there that we should read. but since I had a time in the Geiger counter, and I live not very far from there, I live about uh, 40 miles from the LaSalle uh facility. I went out and I measured radiation levels the next day within uh, the three snow bands, and I did put some video out about that, and I'll send you a link to that. Maybe you could put it on the site.
0: But I, did, I didn't find
3: any significant significant increases, but what I think it illustrates and what is so interesting is that uh, radiation does not come out of a nuclear facility in concentric circles, mm-hmm. which is what evacuation plans and emergency planning zone preparedness plans look like. We know um, from Chernobyl, we know from Fukushima, the radiation comes out and it goes where the wind goes. So you have to look at the weather and which way the wind is blowing when there's a radiation release. And if you look at the snow band map uh, that was out at that time, you could see that if that was a radioactive release from a nuclear plant, you could see that there would be areas that were affected and areas that were not. That is one of the problems as just a resident who is uh, unaware or unfamiliar with what happens at a nuclear facility and you're depending on your um, elected officials and emergency preparedness and the NRC and all these different levels of government to be handling for you, and you just don't understand that um, their emergency planning is not necessarily sufficient to um, protect you in the event of the emergency.
1: That was the case at Three Mile Island because the plume, and again, this is information I've just recently discovered, the plume, because of the wind, went to the north-northwest. And Arnie Gunderson has said that you can be 600 feet and the other one not so. It is that sporadic. So it's best to get the reading back from the source, which, of course, they're not set up to do, and they don't have the backup power to do it. Do we have any way to figure out how much radiation was released? Well, that's a
3: good question, and the director of the Nuclear Energy Information Service, which I am part of that group, asked David Lockbaum of the Union of Concerned Scientists if there's a way to try and estimate the amount of radiation that may have been released at that time. And so... uh, David Lockpound said that some insight could be gained by evaluating previous records of what's called reactor oversight process performance indicators. Um, So there you have to study that to figure what that's about. But what what they basically do is the the radioactivity that has been leaking from the fuel rods into the reactor water at a steadily increasing rate over the past two years, and that reactor water has been leaking into containment at a steady rate, and therefore, radioactivity was flowing from the vent, uh, um, from the containment in this event. So there's radiation that's released from from the systems into the water. They monitor it. They have charts and records going back so many years. And he took a look at that and said there was definitely some leakage from these two systems um, going into the water. Um, but however, he says that the radiation level was. Um, you know, going back to what I said earlier, hopefully it didn't exceed these federal standards because the vents were still flowing they didn't get automatically shut down. I guess my question is, is um, what needs to be answered is, if those, those vents that automatically would trip, I guess, if the radiation exceeded that federal standard, is there some sort of a monitoring on that device that we could get the records to? Is that just set up to just trip when it hits a certain level and you just know that it's under and you know really how do we even know that that vent was properly calibrated when's the last time it was maintained and really the only way to know that that vent was accurately calibrated would be up above it to have this radiation monitoring equipment that wasn't working so we don't really know for sure
1: so has there been an attempt at restarting these reactors since this incident happened and what has happened since that time
2: they tried to restart Unit 2 on April 25th, and that didn't work. and
1: they had the second
2: scram. When you say
1: that that didn't work, did they actually okay. get it up to power or it, it kicked out before that?
2: There was a okay, they tried to restart Unit 2 on April 25th and what's called a, a circulating water pump, it tripped. It's a very essential part located in the part of the reactor where the condenser is, and that caused the scram an automatic scram, it wasn't...
1: So that's uh, the second scram in what, eight days? I think it's the
3: third. Isn't it? The first... <laughs> <in>
1: the th- <laughs> so many accidents, so little time. Because
3: both of them had an automatic, you know, a, a scram, and then when they fire, tried to start up the second uh, reactor again, then they had to scram it. So that's the third scram. That's the third, and and the fourth happened two days later, and...
2: <laughs> okay, so the So the the first two scrams happened on the 17th. Unit 2 tried to restart on April 25th, it was scrammed. The next day, April 26th, the NRC put out a news release saying it was starting a special investigation. They had a team there already, it was an incident response team. So you you had all these NRC people there, while on the 27th, they were trying to restart Unit 1, and of course there was a steam line leak in the containment of, of all places, and they were forced to technically shut down the, the, the reactor, which took, a ton, took some time. It wasn't a you know 100 to 0 kind of thing. So that's for basically four scrams uh, in about 10 or 11 days.
1: And are both units currently shut down?
2: I believe they're both in standby mode still.
1: Well, I
3: believe the unit that they found that there was a leak in they have to bring it to complete cold shutdown to repair that leak. So I think it's going to be a little while before they're back up and
1: running. So, Gail, in light of activists being so aware of this, what actions are you planning, what strategy is in place, or are you still figuring that out? Well,
3: I think we're trying to still figure out what exactly is unfolding there. We are watching what's happening We are monitoring uh, the reports that are coming out and trying to be alert to what may change and certainly uh, if they start to start up a reactor, we would like to know when that's happening. I don't know how we will find that out, but um, it would be nice to be able to watch and, and see what happens at that point. In Illinois, we have always been a key player in all things nuclear from the first atomic chain reaction in 1942 at the University of Chicago until now when Illinois is the state with the most operating nuclear reactors and the most stored nuclear waste. In the future, Illinois looks to be on the short list of possible sites for centralized interim storage of nuclear waste, which would make Illinois a location of regional nuclear waste for the country. And uh, possibly, if nuclear reprocessing occurs in the future, that might happen here if we have all the waste cited here, or a lot of it. Uh, Most recently, uh, what we've been working on is uh, we worked against a bill that was proposed by a state representative, Representative Fortner, that would have uh, partially lifted Illinois' moratorium on building new reactors, and it would have allowed for the construction of small test reactors. On the site of current reactor facilities, which I don't think that would be such a good idea. So it would have made. <laughs> uh, you I know, these it guys are out of their worse.
1: minds. There's really no sanity, but please, don't let my outburst get in the way of your information.
3: <laughs> so it would have made Illinois a sort of a beta test location for the many nuclear reactors that the industry and the current administration are hoping to start this nuclear renaissance with, which they've been trying to jumpstart the nuclear renaissance for a while, um, but Fukushima kind of put them back a little bit. But the nuclear renaissance is the goal of the nuclear industry to start building new nuclear reactors since um, really the progress in building nuclear reactors was stopped in the 1980s after the Three three Mile Island accident in 1979. So the Illinois bill was pulled, but it may be back in January, so we're watching that. And, you know, really, when a nuclear facility has an emergency shutdown in Illinois, like the LaSalle reactor did and vents radioactive steam, I worry that maybe the one nuclear thing that we haven't had here in Illinois, which is a meltdown, is next on Illinois' nuclear resume. And I hope that's... On on the nuclear um,
1: bucket list.
3: Yeah. You know, the other thing and I I think we could get into this is um since we initially started watching um, what's happening with the LaSalle reactor, a number of things have come up and one of them is that we found out the LaSalle Exelon is the operator of the LaSalle facility and they are looking to do a power upgrade at that facility and um Really, you know, I don't know, Andrew. Do you want to explain a little bit about what a power uprate? It's called an uprate. Um, I keep sure. wanting to call it an upgrade, but it's an uprate. Do you want to explain a little bit about that? I call it just a power boost or putting a Hemi in it, but the, is
2: this you know, like revving the
1: engine? You know, souping up the engine on a hot rod?
2: Yeah. Well, it's it's
1: almost like putting
2: race car gasoline in your Toyota Corolla, yes. and it's really not far from the truth because they want for these power uprates. They don't really rebuild a whole new reactor. They take the same reactor and make sure, you know, like a car, the radiator can handle all this extra heat, these BTUs that's getting pumped out. And in order to do that, they're going to – what old reactors?
1: They were started in 82 and 84, so one's 29 and one's 31 years old. Right. So imagine
2: they want to increase the the, uh, percentage of uranium-235 in these fuels, Fuel rods, uh, because it's only you know few percent. Most of it's another isotope called uranium 238. This is you know I, I think it's, this is sort of like uh, race car fuel, sort of. And so what Exxon uh, had decided, because Exxon had had requested to the NRC 1.6, they were going to ask for a big a big one a few years ago. But energy prices were kind of low, and now that inter- energy prices are rising, they're like well we can make some money now and they are asking nrc for a whopping what is it 12.5% of an uprate which means that's 12.5% more thermal heat then they need to reconfigure the cooling they need to figure out if there's little tiny cooling lake next door to them to handle this
1: what about embrittlement i mean the increased radiation has got to have more of a uh, more of a play on the atomic structure of of the metal that's in the steam generator tubes and in the rest of the containment process. This sounds like another in a long line of really bad ideas coming out of the nuclear industry.
2: It's a really, really bad idea. And, and, and if, you, if you could ever feel comfortable that Exelon could really make sure that every, everything's not brittle, everything can be cooled, et cetera, et cetera, one just, one just needs to look right at that cooling pond. There's a, there's a whistleblower by the name of Mike Mulligan, He used to work at Vermont Yankee, and he's been doing some great analyses. He has a blog on the Internet, and he's been saying that this pond, you know, it just heats up really, really high during the the summer times, and sometimes it it, it surpasses the threshold, you know, of the temperature that the NRC has set. It said when they say if it's above 100 degrees Fahrenheit.
1: There's no cooling ability in the water. I think that happened last year where some of the reactors in, I don't know if it was Illinois, it may have been, but they were taken offline because the cooling water was so hot, it wasn't capable of cooling the nuclear reactors.
2: The nuclear plant is discharging hot water, It's like 130 degrees or something like that. It's a nightmare, this whistleblower says, because when the temperatures in this lake go really high, there's fish kills. And what do fish kills mean? That's um, fish debris, which can clog intakes. And and what do diesel generators need to keep cool? Cooling water, and, and what if that cooling water can't get in there because the vents, because the intake grates are all clogged up? There's there's many many reasons to oppose uh, this upgrade. Uh There's many many reasons to you know question whether this out, this this um, nuclear plant should even stay open. So Libby, I
3: found an article in Power Engineering online, and it's from 2007. The title is Nuclear Plant Uprates, and in it, they say that power uprates are largely a recent strategy with most projects kicked off after the mid-1990s, and that extended power uprates are most often performed on boiling water reactors, and this has real implications for the nuclear fleet in the country because the NRC, as we talked about earlier, decided not to put filters on the vents for boiling water reactors, yet they are the ones most likely to go in for um, a power up rate. And what I found out in Illinois, because we have 11 nuclear reactors, is that since 2001, every reactor in Illinois has been upgraded. If you go back to 2000, LaSalle has been upgraded twice. Five of our 11 reactors were allowed the extended power upgrades, which is where they have to really um, revamp their system so that they can get the maximum amount of power out of them. And and if if Exelon is requesting both of LaSalle to get the same, we will have seven of our 11 reactors souped up and maxed out to get the most power out of them as possible You know, former Chairman Jasko said that all the nuclear reactors should be shut down because he really said that the nuclear uh, regulatory commissioners were just rolling the dice. And when I look at this, um, Illinois, not only have we had a number of power uprates, we've had huge power uprates. Five of our our reactors, one of them, the highest amount of uprate you can get is 20%. Uh, Dresden 2 and 3 both had 17%. Quad Cities 1 and 2 both had 17.8%, and the Clinton reactor got the full 20%. And you really don't see this high trend of nuclear uh, up rates at these nuclear reactors until when this article came out about 2007. Before that, the up rates were much more modest. They were 1.3% and 4%. So, you know, it's really amazing that as this nuclear fleet ages, because these nuclear reactors are hitting their 30s, Um,
1: and they were only designed to be run for 40 years and then shut down
3: right and so now they are just pushing them to the limit is that
1: what you do with an old car when you have it (laughs)
3: not really but that's what they're doing here
1: no you break it down for parts which of course given the nuclear industry they'd be selling them on ebay because they are gail If there were a way for people to get involved, to take some energy of outrage and put it in service to the work that you are doing, what can they do and where can they contact you?
3: You can contact Nuclear Energy Information Service. It's www.neis.org. We have a lot of historical information about Illinois there, which is very interesting if you want to read up and a lot of fact sheets about what's happening. And we also have speakers who can come out and speak to this
0: issue.
2: Uh, My website is nuclearcrimes.org.
3: Nuclearcrimes.org.
2: And people can contact me through the website.
0: That was Gail Snyder of the Nuclear Energy Information Service, NEIS.org, and Andrew Kishner of nuclearcrimes.org. Gail and Andrew provided me with information on two separate Nuclear Regulatory Commission teleconferences coming up almost immediately. One is on May 1st, which is a public teleconference presentation by Exelon discussing the power uprate request for LaSalle. People can contact Gail at NEIS for details on how to sign on, since it is a bit complicated to be on this call as the NRC needs to know beforehand, but she can guide you. The other one is on Thursday, May 2nd from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when the NRC is meeting in Maryland with representatives from community activist groups who are challenging the operation of 31 General Electric Mark I and Mark II boiling water reactors in the United States. These are either identical to or very close to the boiling water reactors that melted down at Fukushima. The meeting with the NRC will be broadcast online, and also people can call on one of the 300 toll-free telephone lines to listen to the groups read their statements. The phone number is 888-603-9750, and you need to put in the PIN code for the passcode, which is 550-6147, and this will be posted on the website. Now, I had a big laugh this week through one of those serendipitous things that just seems to dog my path all through my life. I checked a recent email from LinkedIn that listed job postings that might be right for me based on my posted profile. One of them was so perfect, I almost doubled over laughing. It was from Southern California Edison Corporate Communications. What were they looking for? A new hire in the Nuclear Communications Group. This person was to serve as primary community interface between SCE and San Onofre with local officials and the public. I figured, dude, could it be more perfect? I mean, I went over the job requirements, bachelor's degree in communications, experience in journalism, public relations, and English. I mean, I'm there. I've got this. Must have at least five years of media relations. Hands down, got it. And then it went on with all these other things. Has to be experience in change communications, including audio. I think I've got that one. Experience with nuclear energy communications. Excellent writing acumen and the ability to simplify complex technical information. I've been doing it for almost two years on this podcast. Now, here's the punchline to the whole thing. I tried to apply for the job because, let's face it, it would have made a great story to follow it through. But either it's been filled or it's not offered or they figured out who I was because I couldn't get through on their automated sign-up thing. But, man... It sure made my day. Now, here's the final thought. We're used to our elected officials blowing off or shining on the concerns about radiation and its dangers. So it is shocking, in a good way, to come across this quote from President John F. Kennedy, which he made in June of 1963. He said, The number of children and grandchildren with cancer in their bones with leukemia in their blood, or with poison in their lungs, might seem statistically small to some in comparison with natural health hazards. But this is not a natural health hazard, and it is not a statistical issue. The loss of even one human life, or the malformation of even one baby, who may be born long after we are gone, should be of concern to us all. Our children and grandchildren are not merely statistics towards which we can be indifferent. He went on to sign the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. A president with an eye to a better future for the greatest number of people and who understood the dangers of nuclear with great empathy towards the populace. What a concept! This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 30th, 2013. Material for this week's show came from enenews.com, Fukushima Diary and Diori Mochizuki, Kyoto News, RT.com, Washington Post, New York Times, Potter Blog, GG News, The Hindu.com, Anti Nuclear Alliance of Western Australia. Welcome aboard, friends. The NRC, Channel 10 News in San Diego, EnviroShow.wordpress.com, TheReformer.com. King Five News in Washington, pitch.com, Fox News, Forbes.com, VeteransToday.com, and the fabulous, darling, fabulous Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community, which you are all invited to join and like and link to, all that good stuff. Our archive of ninety-eight podcasts, closing on the big one zero zero, are available on iTunes or at nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. The blog page is better because that's where I have links, pictures, videos, and a mini description of each week's content. So there's lots of information to enrich your understanding of the issues. Now here's the mini pitch. Nuclear Hot Seat is a completely volunteer project with ongoing expenses. So if you appreciate the show, let me know, say something nice to me online, or, and here's the pitch part, Get thee to the homepage at NuclearHotSeat.com. Scroll down, hit the donate button, follow the prompts. Send me something, please. It will help keep this podcast alive. Or rather, it will help keep me alive in the process of making this podcast. (laughs) Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So use us and support us as the resource that we are. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2013 Libby Halevy and Hardest Communications, all rights reserved, but permission is granted to reuse as long as you include proper attribution, the website, and the email address. We're going to go out today on November Tango. Written and performed by the insurgency and most specifically Sherry Lutz. Thanks for the use of the music and thanks for Greg Panzica for turning me on to it. This is Libby Halevi of Hardest Street Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake up call now. Don't go back to sleep. This next song is called November Tango. And I wrote it about 20 years ago, and it's about uh, nuclear weapons, nuclear meltdowns, and uh, I, it's what's going on right now. And everybody knows about Fukushima, right? The news blackout.